Today we speak with legendary climate activist Bill McKibben and scholar Carolyn Levine. Bill McKibben relates his long struggle to get companies to divest from fossil fuels and for the world in general to act immediately to seriously and substantially address this existential crisis. Carol Levine tells of her efforts to get the giant pension fund TIAA-CREF to divest. She also talks about her new book, The Activist Humanist, and its relation to both her teaching and her activism. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with The Creative Process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. We begin by just talking about the idea that brings us together, which is divestment. In the face of an existential crisis, I'd like for you, Bill, to start because you've been at the center of this struggle for so long. Tell us about why it's important to do this now and talk a little bit, too, about the resistance you faced for all this time. So, of course, I've been working on climate issues for a very long time. I wrote the first book about climate change way back in 1989. We then called it the greenhouse effect. That's how old I am. At a certain point, maybe 20 years ago, it became clear to me that I would need to do more than write books, that the clear warning that the scientists were providing was not proving to be enough to change the outcome here. And that's because the enormous power of the fossil fuel industry was resisting it at every turn. They were engaged in a campaign of delay and denial and disinformation. So we started forming movements to try and build some power of our own, not with money, but with people. And with seven students here at Middlebury, where I teach, we launched a thing called 350.org that became the first big global grassroots climate campaign. We've organized, we think, about 20,000 demonstrations in every country except North Korea. We had a few big projects to begin with. One was helping spearhead the fight against the Keystone pipeline, which became the sort of great environmental battle of the last decade in a lot of ways. And the next after that was to start this divestment campaign. The idea really was hatched by my friend Naomi Klein and I. We'd both been reading the latest science, which showed that the fossil fuel industry had in its reserves and that it planned to dig up and burn roughly five times as much carbon as any scientist thought we could safely absorb. In other words, these were rogue companies. Their business plan spelled complete disaster for the planet. Both of us had been college students in the 1980s. And so Naomi and I thought back to the last time there'd been a kind of big, obvious class of really rogue industries, which were the ones supporting the South Africa apartheid government in that country. And we thought about the effectiveness of the divestment campaign in helping draw attention to and eventually drive those companies out of that line of work. So we decided to see what we could do. One of the first things we did was ask Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa, who had won the Nobel Prize for his work on that campaign, if it was okay to borrow the idea. And he said, please, you know, if apartheid was the human rights question of the last generation, then climate change is the human rights question for this one. So I wrote a long article for Rolling Stone that went very viral, and that became the foundation for launching a, a kind of tour of first this country, then Australia, New Zealand, and then Europe. And 
we'd do big programs you know, for many thousands of people at a time to explain to them the logic of this campaign and then to get them enlisted in it. The one in the U.S. in the fall of 2012, we visited 29 cities in 30 days or something like that. And by the time we were done, there were several hundred divestment campaigns underway on college campuses. And it soon spread to foundations, to pension funds, on and on. It's been extraordinarily successful by many measures. I think the biggest anti-corporate campaign of its kind in history, we're at about $40 trillion now in endowments and portfolios that have divested in part or in whole from coal, oil, gas. And that's had both measurable effects on the kind of social standing, as it were, of these companies. We said we wanted to take away their social license, and I think that helped a good deal. And But also on their access to capital, especially in the coal industry, as fewer and fewer funds are willing to participate in that work. There has been opposition, of course, every step of the way because it represented, in the eyes of the industry, a profound threat. And so, you know, at every turn. For a while, they announced that an opposition research firm in Washington had been hired to dig into everything about my past and then to also follow me around wherever I went with people with cameras every time I stepped outside the door. It was a weird year or two, but you know, what can I tell you? I leave a pretty boring life. And eventually they, you know, went on in search of more fruitful harvest. But you know, at every turn, there's been a big fight. But in fact, that's been good. This was a way to take the climate fight everywhere. Most people don't live proximate to a oil well, pipeline, coal mine. But everyone's adjacent to a pot of money, a church fund, a college endowment, pension fund. And that meant that the climate fight could be carried out in 10,000 places at once. And so it was. Two things in particular that I was really interested in talking to you both about. One is the ways in which places like Tia Kref have used the argument that it is their fiduciary duty not to divest. But I feel that things are shifting, that people are understanding that it actually is their fiduciary duty to divest. It's their risky stocks. They're being proven over and over again to be something that is not just a popular sentiment again, but it is again a moral and ethical message that more and more people are getting regardless of their financial interests. So I'd like you to both talk about what you think might be a shifting landscape in the power of places like TIA Craft to resist it. And the second one is, I had on the show earlier a person named Jacqueline Jacquet, who wrote a book called The Playbook. I don't know if you've seen this, Bill, but it's a parody of corporate speaking. And it's told from the position of a corporate advisor saying, here's the playbook for fighting these people that want to divest. And she has something that I'm sure you're familiar with, maybe not in the same nomenclature, called the arsenals. And by the arsenal, she means not only pundits out there in the media or corporate shills, but faculty in campuses as well. And this is where some of the contradictions take place. And I was talking to Caroline about our own new school for sustainability. And the first thing that the dean said is that he would not refuse to take money from anybody who wanted to help including oil companies. And the students said, well, how do we know they want to help? And so I also did a program with those students about how the educational landscape is so, it's a battlefield and corporations know this. So could you talk a little bit about 
A, what you see as possible improvements in the landscape about, and especially the argument about fiduciary duties, and then how you see the educational space as being particularly important here. Why don't you dig in, Carolyn, and I'll uh, sure, sure. follow your lead. So fiduciary duty is one of those terms that these institutions just trot out here, there, and the other place. And it seems to me like they often don't know what they're saying exactly. So with pension funds, for example, like TIAA, and pension funds are a major driver of the climate crisis, they say they have a fiduciary duty and they mean to get a short-term return on investment for their clients. But pension funds have a long-term duty. They're supposed to protect future generations also. And so it's very easy to argue that it's not in the fiduciary duty of a pension fund to get the shortest term benefit at the expense of the longer term. Universities also trot out this argument. And, you know, now we've seen that that doesn't hold. (laughs) Plenty of universities have divested and it's been completely fine. So it seems like a smokescreen kind of intended to send people away. I think that's absolutely right. And the whole notion of fiduciary is to hold in trust and for the future to make decisions based on the needs of others at a remove. There's no point in helping us save for retirement if we're not going to have a planet to retire on. So as one institution after another has found, this is well within, trust me, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, the University of California, the University of Michigan, these guys have a lot of lawyers, you know, if they were running a risk of violating their fiduciary duty in some legal way, they certainly wouldn't be doing this. There's a number of places now that are being sued precisely for not living up to their fiduciary duty by divesting from fossil fuel. So this is just one of these, as you say, David, endless arsenal of arguments. People trot out not in good faith, just as a, you know, one more way to avoid. And I'd like to add that Universities have two particular interesting features here. One, since they're in the business of educating mostly young people, they have a particular duty to try and actually look to the future in a profound way. And two, universities are supposed to be the last place in our society that actually cares about intellectual honesty at some level. And these companies, there is no question the investigative reporting is absolute and clear. There's no question. These companies have covered up and lied about climate change for 35 or 40 years. Exxon knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s, knew and believed it. They started building their drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. They just didn't tell the rest of us. Instead, they hired people who used to work for the tobacco industry to go try and continue the same sort of cover-up quite successfully. If a professor or a student engaged in that behavior at a university, they'd be out on their ear and rightly so. That's why we have honor codes and, you know, so on and so forth. We're now seeing lots of institutions actively investigating their faculty because they're finding cases of data manipulation and, well, you don't want the record poisoned by bad data. But that should go as profoundly for the endowment as for the award of tenure or something. It's absurd to let people who are actively wrecking the planet be an effective part of the university community, whether it's through investing in them or in many universities, letting them come in and build, you know, centers and things, institutes designed to forward their own interests. By this point, is such a toxic industry with Mm. such an insane impact. The temperature in 2023 
was higher than it's been in at least 125,000 years on this planet, almost entirely to the efforts of the fossil fuel industry. I mean, if we're serious about civilization, which theoretically universities are the flower of, then we better get our act together fast. Right. And it's especially galling when some professors hide behind the cover of academic freedom, right? They claim it's their academic freedom to say willy-nilly what they want, or they have these off-university websites that still carry their institutional identification, so they benefit from that. And what Naomi Oreska says is that, you know, academic freedom, A, is not absolute, and B, it's attached to academic responsibility. So you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't claim one thing and do the other. But as you've said so powerfully, and it's been saying for so long, Bill, it's also a matter of delaying reactions, right? It's not that it's asking people not stop directly, but the industry is so good at just patching together band-aids, right? Greenwashing, deferring action, which is a sort of a slow death sentence. Can you talk a little bit about how universities can be complicit in greenwashing? Well, Caroline can do this as well as I can, but let me just say briefly, at this point, outright climate denial is almost impossible unless you're Donald Trump or somebody. You know, there have been too many fires and too many floods and too much heat. But the new form of effective denial is delay. Science tells us now that we have to move very fast to have any chance of dealing with this. And instead, the fossil fuel industry is doing everything they can to preserve their business model a few more decades, even at the cost of breaking the planet, which clearly will be the cost. So this is just another one of these cases where the facts make clear what we need to do. And as Al Gore said a long time ago, those facts can be inconvenient, in this case, inconvenient for the industry in question, and also, you know, inconvenient for the investment manager at the university who's going to have to spend a few weeks rebuilding the portfolio. But on the list of things that we have to do to cope with climate change, you know, this falls on the easy end of the spectrum and on the highly effective end of the spectrum. And this should be over and done and we should be on to the next part. We shouldn't still have to be playing this particular game. But thank heaven, Caroline and so many others are still willing to be pushing hard here. So, Caroline, please update us on what's happening with TIA CREF, because for those folks who don't know, TIA CREF is a nonprofit. It is the place where most faculty put their retirement funds. And so you would think that as a nonprofit or not-for-profit specifically pegged toward educators, you would think that they would be sensitive to the issue of the future education and all these things rather than simply watching the bottom line. So Caroline has been pressing this campaign with some very strong comrades for many, many years. I would like to ask you, Caroline, what's the latest on your effort to get TIA CREP to divest from fossil fuels? Yeah. And just to add to that, how shocked I was to learn that TIAA was so deeply invested in fossil fuels. They got $78 billion in fossil fuels. And it's a $1.3 trillion business, which I didn't know either because they seem like a kind of mom and pop pension fund. They're for teachers. They were founded for teachers. Doesn't seem like they should be one of the major world drivers of the climate crisis. But so as soon as I learned that, I wanted to get involved. And we've been putting pressure on them, developing quite a few university resolutions at the American Federation of Teachers, the United University Professors have passed resolutions putting pressure on TIAA to divest from fossil fuels. And last year, we filed a formal complaint with the 
Principles of Responsible Investment, which is a UN-backed organization, saying that TIA was actually violating its own norms. And the PRI didn't really take our complaint to heart, but we had 800 signatories, including Noam Chomsky and Bill McKibben, who's here, saying we should get out of fossil fuels. And TIA so far has said we have this fiduciary duty which they don't have. And they've said, you know, it's bad for clients if we get out of fossil fuels, which is not the case. You know, so they're throwing up a lot of smoke screens. Our targets most recently have been the top 12 universities, which have TIAA money flowing through them. The University of Pennsylvania is actually number one with over $4 billion of TIAA money that passed via the University of Pennsylvania, Harvard, Penn, Stanford, Yale, Cornell, they're all in the top 12. And they have huge sway with TIAA, but they have so far not been interested really in using that power. But all of the top universities, the ones that have the biggest TIAA accounts, also have members of the boards of governors and trustees of TIAA on their faculties. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of Johns Hopkins, the president of Johns Hopkins is also on the board of governors of TIAA. And that's an enormously powerful position, the Board of Governors position that makes all of the important decisions for TIAA. So Ron Daniels, the president of Johns Hopkins, could say TIAA should get out of fossil fuels. You know, he could do that with one <laughs> meeting. He has not wanted to do it. I have a colleague at Cornell, Maureen O'Hara, who's on the Board of Trustees of TIAA. She's in the business school at Cornell, and she says divestment isn't a smart business decision. So we're trying to help our colleagues understand, as Bill said, you know, a lot of faculty don't know where their pension money is, and most of us don't look into our pensions until, you know, a few years before retirement. And so we don't realize that our pension money is at risk by being in fossil fuels and exactly. that we should be pressuring exactly. our universities to move it out. So all of that is one of the reasons we really want to get the word out about the campaign. Well, I'm glad that you're doing this. It is so important. And beyond being an ethical and moral mission, it has such great educational value, you know, for people to wake up and see how the money has been instrumental in delaying a substantial response to an existential crisis. And it's funny because here at Stanford, when we fought against tobacco industry, it's interesting that the university never really moved on it. It was only because we made it so unpleasant for the tobacco companies that they withdrew. So, you know, universities are not good actors in this, but sometimes there are other pathways where we can exert pressure. But in the meantime, you have a wonderful organization set up, Caroline. I'm absolutely supportive of it. Well, I really appreciate it. And I hope that listeners will go to the TIAADivest.org website and check us out and join us. We would love to have more volunteers. We're an all-volunteer organization and we yes. welcome newcomers. Well, I'd love to put you both into dialogue on this because, Bill, you mentioned facts. And I teach a course called What Makes Climate Change Unbelievable? <laughs> because we have the facts. But I'm really interested in Caroline's new book, which is amazing, The Activist Humanist. How can we create or express or represent facts in ways that are compelling? And I'd like to get both of your thoughts on that. Maybe, Caroline, you can go first about how your book is trying to give a kind of shape or a form or a series of articulations that might help break this logjam, so to speak. One of the things I started to worry about was that humanities fields really love delays. They love to think about stopping and opening our mind to the possibilities, you know, that it's all about not rushing into action. 
it's about kind of you look at an artwork and that prompts new thoughts and opens your mind to a different kind of world. And because the climate crisis is so urgent, I felt like I had to kind of change my humanistic approach, right, is to think not delay anymore. But how do you then rush us when that goes against our very principles as humanists? And I think there's something true across the whole university about this, you know, that scholarship is supposed to be slow and rigorous and thoughtful. And, and it should, you know, I don't think that that's wrong. But how do we then urge ourselves? into quick action. So part of my work has been to kind of think about what, what's practical action we can take that will have an effect that could actually move us in a, in a given direction without selling our soul as scholars or as humanists or as artists. And it seems to me there's a tremendous amount that can be done. But 350.org is one of my models through the whole book, which is to say, how do you get a lot of people talking together? Well, in the humanities, we've also been very insistent on making sure that we honor real difference across the world, right? We don't homogenize people. We try to really give a full spectrum. And that occasionally gets in the way of everybody speaking together. So how do you do it in a way that doesn't destroy the differences among people, but still gathers us together? And that's why I love the kind of what I call the hinged model of 350.org, where you have lots of local organizations, but they're connected and they amplify each other and they, they work together, but not by having one single boss or power structure. And we certainly took that model and ran with it at Cornell. You know, we took the 350.org model, but nobody told us what to do. We just said, okay, we're going to learn from it and we're going to do it here. And so I think it's a really brilliant way of pulling people together. It's a little different from the question of how to make climate change believable. I think one of the things we spend a lot of time on in my classes at Cornell is how little most of us know even about our own university and where where are the fossil fuels at a university like Cornell? They're not in the places that students think. So. Cornell successfully divested its endowment, for example. But we're still attached to a gas-powered fuel plant that produces the energy for most of the campus. Not in the summertime, because we have this fantastic lake source cooling project, which is a renewable energy. But in the wintertime, most of the energy for the campus comes from natural gas. And I find that my students don't know anything about that. It's invisible to them. So they see things like the lights are on in the buildings. They're LED lights, so it's not a, actually a huge energy sink, or they see that food is being wasted, but we in fact compost most of our food at Cornell. So it's also partly just trying to get them to think about the money as a real engine of what universities do. Where is the money coming into the universities for research and for the pension funds of all of their faculty and all of the staff at the university? All of that is, you know, literally billions of dollars coming in through as if we're laundering the fossil fuel companies and getting in the way, as Bill says, of the very core mission of the work that we do. So I've really been trying to think about how you talk about that, which is kind of invisible. And I think money is often that. And universities and other organizations often aren't transparent about how the money flows. So it's also about finding that out and figuring out how to track it. And it takes a lot of research to do that. Yeah. We're universities, we, we can do that kind of research. Absolutely. I have no doubt that Cornell's biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions is the money that it has in pension funds or just sitting in the bank as it conducts its, I have no doubt that dwarfs the amount that comes out of the back of that generating station. I mean, it's just such a good story to be able to kind of uncover and tell because it really helps people understand, students understand where effective power lies, how you make actual change as opposed to, you know, sort of obvious, but somewhat cosmetic change. And it also is important at a place like Cornell just to set it all in context. I mean, Cornell has 
some of the greatest climate scientists in the world. The fact that we understand what methane is doing, and methane is 35 or 40% of the heating gases in the atmosphere, is down very largely to a man named Bob Howarth, who's a professor at Cornell. And what a dishonor to his research and work that it doesn't occur to the university administrators to at least get rid of the stock in the very companies that have spent the last 20 years trying to discredit him, trying to prevent his work from being understood and appreciated, on and on. So universities are a really powerful nexus for this. And even, I mean, it's not like students are the only ones who are blind to all of this. I mean, you know, university faculty are supposed to be smart. That's sort of the theoretically the defining characteristic. But they're as oblivious as everybody else. If you ask people, wander around a university asking faculty what their pension funds are invested in, you know, what do I know? I mean, they can tell you for the last dumb controversy at the faculty senate was, and they have a deep opinion about parking policy on campus and, you know, so on and so forth. But it really is up, up to faculty, too, to be willing to do a little bit of work here. And it's why it's been so much fun to watch this movement arise among faculty to hold TIA responsible, which, after all, at least loosely is some kind of supposed association of faculty formed by professors for their interests, but somehow has been, like all these things, profoundly captured by whatever the bureaucracy is that was set up to run it in the first place. Well, since Caroline mentioned, Bill, that she took inspiration in your work and what your group has done, could you talk a little bit about how your group has grown and kind of learned as it went, as it were, in terms of what was effective, what kinds of strategies did you try and you discard or modify where you are today? So one of the things, as I said before, that was really useful was this divestment fight let us carry out this same fight in 10,000 places at once, which of course meant that there were, you know, in an ideal world, that's how you do experiments and figure out what works, that you have a lot of different possibilities and then look and see. And, you know, it varied. There are places that, and universities that actually have a sort of deeply defined moral mission, often religious schools, and they were often easier to move than others. There were places that only responded when civil disobedience came into play. And I think those are places that are exquisitely worried about their image and what it looks like. The best harvest of this divestment campaign were the students on universities who worked on it, who got trained up and psyched up and became incredible. When they got out of school, they wanted to keep working on climate change. And so veterans of the divestment campaign formed this thing called the Sunrise Movement. And it was the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. And it was the Green New Deal in kind of boiled down form that eventually became the Inflation Reduction Act, the first significant work that Congress ever did. You know, the woman who was the ED, the executive director of the Sunrise Movement for its first eight years or something, was a woman named Varshini Prakash, one of the great activists in the world who I first knew when she was, I don't know, 17 and running the divestment campaign at UMass Amherst, going to jail, winning an early victory there. And, you know, she and many of others of that cohort went on to really do us proud in their work. Great. So I'll ask Caroline in the kind of micro way. And Specifically thinking about the classroom and if your students are like mine, I guess they are. There's a really interesting combination of intellectual apprehension and emotional investments in this topic. So what have you found to be successful ways of teaching this topic and motivating students and having them manifest 
some of their energy into, as you say, form. I think the hardest challenge for me in my classroom is getting students to think beyond individual consumer level choices. So they hold themselves very, to very high standards. You know, they're supposed to stop eating meat and stop driving cars and they want to be zero waste. And they have this very high standard of their own individual action. We talk a lot in my classroom about how that may not even be helpful. The kind of self-punishing and the guilt and the policing of our own actions may distract us from the kinds of collective action that we need. So how do we get together in groups? How do groups grow large and have the kind of actual power to move institutions? And we spend a whole semester on that. And that, I think, channels some of the fear which students rightly have about their futures. What, what can they do to help in the battle for climate change? But also, I find it intellectually incredibly exciting to think about. So I'm an English professor. I think about storytelling, which everybody in the climate psychology world says is a really effective tool of climate communication. But so many of our stories are told about individuals, right? We tend to tell stories about heroes. How do we tell stories about groups, right? What does that look like? And so we put our minds to this. And every semester we do Cornell-focused climate campaigns where we actually try to reach our whole campus on these questions. And students can choose, you know, any element of Cornell's emissions to work on. But they often end up working on something that they didn't even know existed before the semester began, like the fact that faculty and staff air travel is 13% of our total emissions. How do you think about air travel in an institutional way, not in an individual way, like each person has to feel guilty, but how do we do our research? How do we think and talk and get together in ways that don't have these destructive effects on the planet? So, you know, one of the things that I think has been so different from my old classroom where I am a literary critic, so it used to be that, you know, brought in the books. <laughs> And we had a wonderful time reading passages and thinking thoughts. And now instead we think, okay, how does this book help us build a different world? And then what does that actual building look like? And that is a very unfamiliar place for me as a humanities faculty member. But it's also been a place where I feel like I and my students are really joined. We really want to solve this problem together. And so there's none of the, I don't have to bring my own passion to the classroom to get them energized. And they want to know. I mean, this is the thing that I think is so magical about this generation. I mean, there are many wonderful things about them, but a lot of them are equally interested in science and in like humanities and arts and politics. And so you can get them thinking about the climate crisis in the ways that we have to be thinking about them and the ways the university is perfectly poised to do because we have all these experts in lots of different fields, but we faculty don't even often talk to each other. The students, however, do talk to each other and can think across these different disciplines. So for me, it's been an incredibly hopeful experiment, but I think it's also rare. I think the kind of thing in my classroom, part of the reason I wrote the book, The Activist Humanist, is I think there is some activism in humanities classrooms, but it isn't about the climate crisis usually, and it isn't about how to build power using the tools that we have. So I really wanted to try to cross that bridge from humanistic thinking to action and using what we can learn from the sciences and the social sciences and activists along the way. Well, one of the examples in recent times in terms of humanities and art and activism, of course, is throwing the soup can against the Picasso, which is actually pane of glass, but they don't often talk about this. And I had Tim Hewlett on the show, who is one of the co-founders of Scientist Rebellion. And their group was part of the more active interventionist types. Uh, and they were soundly criticized by Michael Mann, who said, 
you know, all you do is get the buzzy headline. People don't really realize what the issue is until later on. And, you know, Tim said, I asked Tim the same question I asked Bills, you know, how has your activism shifted and morphed and been experimental in some ways? And he said, at the end of Scientist Rebellion, it's, it's very much a matter of both the emotion, both the intellect, that different populations approach this issue in different ways. And so to mandate one over the other would not be effective. But and I think that this is something I'd like to end on perhaps about hope, because I think in a sad but wonderful way, this is making us better human beings. You hear a lot about corporate malfeasance, and certainly there's a surplus of that. But when our students here at the Door School launched a protest about accepting fossil fuel money, people came to them. In other words, it was a visceral reaction to taking oil money that people that didn't know about the topic a great deal just viscerally felt that doesn't make any sense at all. So I was wondering if both of you, and I'm sort of prompting you to be optimistic, you may not want to be, but if you to be optimistic, where do you see optimism? Where do you see hope? I think I see it all over the place. One of the ways in which I've been changed over the last few years is from ever really listening to cynics. I think the cynics are, first of all, lazy, or all kind of self-serving, right? They're like, oh, I'm so, I know the world. I know it will never change, right? And I mean, I was trained as a Victorian literature scholar. I know how much activists have changed every aspect of our lives. I mean, childbirth, labor, rights. I, I mean, every aspect of our lives. So why do we go around saying activists can't change the world? Of course, activists can change the world. They're doing it all the time. And so I am hopeful in part because studying activism has made me think, oh, this really does work. And I think, as you say, it's not one size fits all. And it's not that there's a right way to do activism, but there are a lot of successful activist stories and building on those and getting the hopeful stories out there so that people do feel. I mean, my students and I have often felt like, what's the point of doing anything? You know, nothing ever changes. But, but once we tell the stories like, oh, yes, things really do change and here's how they change, then they want to be involved and I want to be involved. So, yes, not only do I have hope, but I want other people to take hope from the stories that we should be telling about activist successes. Yeah. Viewed one way, we live at a very hopeful moment. Thanks to in large part, the work of university scientists and engineers. We now live on a planet where the cheapest way to produce power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That is to say, we could run our earth on energy from heaven instead of hell, and we could do it fast. The fast is the hard part here. The only difference between all the examples of the long victories of social justice activism that Caroline rightly describes, and the situation that we're in now, is that this one is a time-limited problem. If we don't solve it fast, then we don't solve it. No one's got a plan for how you reprise the Arctic once you've melted it. And so we have to move very quickly. Our systems are not designed to move quickly. It's the easiest thing in the world to slow down and delay change, which is all that the fossil fuel industry at this point is really trying to do. And that means that it's time for maximum effort from all of us. A story to tell is the planet is outside its comfort zone, so we need to be outside ours. And that's, I think, why people like Caroline work so hard on all of this right now. Well, I can't thank you both enough for being on the show. I know your time is precious. I know you have many, many 
fires to put out, so to speak. So I appreciate you being here and the message is strong and the message will continue to be pressed out there because it's the most important one. So thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you for having us. And Caroline, so many thanks for your good work and we'll see you soon down the road. Thank you both. What a pleasure. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.